friends, I want to um, give to you a couple of book suggestions today. We Once again, today we look at the person of the Holy Spirit. Um, and I think a really good place to start with that is if you've never read this book, it's by Sinclair Ferguson. So I'm going to hold this up. This is uh, the Holy Spirit. And <clears throat> it's a really comprehensive look uh, at the Holy Spirit. Sinclair Ferguson is super solid. So if you've never um, read this, I would suggest, I put that on the handout too as a recommended reading. So it's a really great um, book. Can't, can't recommend this um, more than um, just a really great study. Colton also reminded me this week of um, Michael Horton's book, Rediscovering the Holy Spirit. I think that's the correct title. I haven't read that book. I know Michael Horton's a solid dude. But um, not take Colton's, obviously, suggestion on that. But I think at the title of it's Rediscovering the Holy Spirit, um, which would be a, a great resource as well. And then, of course, I can't get through a teaching without mentioning R.C. Sproul. Um, this is a pretty heavy tome. I mean, this is a pretty technical book to get through. It's a great book. It's very worthwhile. But if you're not really into this heavy of a read at the moment, then there is... Um, a good sort of condensed version of systematic theology sort of for the everyday person. As a matter of fact, the title of it is Everyone's a Theologian by R.C. Sproul. And there's a section obviously in there on the Holy Spirit, uh, on pneumatology. Um, and so he, he will break that down in really um, digestible terms and ideas, just the classic R.C. teaching that you get. So if, if this is too much at the moment and you want to get your feet wet, then I would suggest maybe getting into this, which is kind of his version of kind of an overview of systematic theology, which would be a really, really great thing uh, to look at. So just a couple of book suggestions um, along the way as well. So yeah, Colton says, rediscovery of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Um, so he's, Michael Horton is also the host of uh, the White Horse Inn podcast, which I've listened to some a few times. So yeah, Michael Horton's a great guy. Um, so I'd like to get into this topic today. So what, so the person of the Holy Spirit. And so I totally stole this introduction from Sinclair Ferguson, but um, I heard, I actually was watching a series of teachings on, that Sinclair did over the Holy Spirit this past week, just as sort of a supplementary uh, prep time for me. And he began one of his teachings with this little thought um, analogy or kind of thought experiment. And I'd like to kind of run this by you as well. Okay, so here we go. This is totally from Sinclair, but I, th I think it really does hit. It, it certainly most, most certainly um, convicted me in this. So Sinclair says this, <clears throat> he says, I want you to imagine that you're in the upper room in the year 3380, okay? You're one of the 12 disciples. And you notice that one of the disciples leaves the room and you're listening to, and you're engaging with in conversation with the Lord Jesus. So you're talking with him. And at that moment, you are very aware that something dramatic is about to happen. Um, you see Judas leave the room. Something seems to have lifted in Jesus's own spirit. And then you hear Jesus say something that's, um, that's quite dramatic, and it, it catches you off guard in some way. And Jesus says to you and to the other disciples that it is to your advantage that I'm going away. And you blink and you turn to your fellow disciples and you whisper to him, did Jesus really say that's to our advantage that he's going to go away? And one of the other disciples who's perhaps listening a bit more carefully than you are or that I am says to you, um, well, you should have heard Jesus's next sentence. Because Jesus goes on to say, because if I don't go away from you, then the Holy Spirit will not come to you. Now, Sinclair pushes this a little bit further, and he says, I, I want you to imagine yourself in that situation. You're in the upper room. You just heard this, this dialogue take place with Jesus. And he says, I want to encourage you to make a, a decision, a choice, right here, right now, this morning. Which would you rather have? Would you rather have Jesus as he is in this upper room so that you could see his eyes, um, that you could tell what height he is, that you could sit, um, get a good sense of his accent, if you could understand Aramaic, um, 
that you could see his hand movements, his gestures, that you could get a sense of the power and the weight of his authority and his personality. Would you rather have that? Or would you rather have the Holy Spirit? Now, <laughs> when he asked, when Sinclair asked that question, he follows us up and it kind of struck me as well. Uh, he says, for the most of us, that's a, that's a dumb question to ask, right? And it's, it, it's kind of silly in that. And he says, the reason that is that most of us in kind of our own our, our mind's eye would say that we'd rather have Jesus that the way he is than to have the Holy Spirit. And the question is, why is that? Because Jesus clearly says that it's better for us that the Holy Spirit would come than that he would remain. And there's a lot of, obviously, theological reasons to that. Just sort of a, a personal, um, emotional reason to that. So it's, it's really hard to understand how that Jesus is going away from the disciples could ever be to the advantage of them. They were, it, was a, it was a head-scratcher for them, and sometimes it is for us as well. Well, I think the answer, or us kind of working through the answer to that question, like, obviously, we would probably tend to choose Jesus over the Holy Spirit in that way. But I suspect it reveals something about ourselves, and maybe it's just me, it reveals something about me, about my thoughts concerning the Holy Spirit. Um, and that is, who is he? And why is he so important? And, and perhaps why is he relegated to some forgotten part of, of the Godhead of the Trinity? So I think with that kind of idea in mind, we're, we're seeing clear kind of pushes us to think through that, that, that question a little bit, hits to the very, the very part of us looking at this week, this, the study this morning, about the person of the Holy Spirit, what kind of personality he has. And then once again into next week, we'll get into. Um, we'll get into the, um, the work of the Holy Spirit as well, okay? So if you, I don't know if you can see the handout. Hopefully that you can. Um, one of the ways we want to do that, to look at the person of the Holy Spirit, is to look at him in kind of two, two, two aspects. And one of them, which we'll spend probably a good bit of time on today, this morning, is the fact that the Holy Spirit is God. Now, I know I'm talking to all of you who affirm that and believe that, but um, sometimes we perhaps in, in our day-to-day -day spiritual lives forget that, right? That kind of escapes from our thought in some way. Um, and so it's not only the terms we use for the third person of the Godhead that presents him as the divine nature, but we can talk about terms all day long, but what does actually the scripture teach about the Holy Spirit? And that's what we really want to be after today. What does the scriptures actually say about him? So just like with Colton's teaching of the person and the work of Christ, we want to look at through scripture, we too want to look at the person and the work of the Holy Spirit and how the, how the scriptures reveal that, right? And it's a bit of irony tied into this because we, once again, we couldn't have the scriptures. We wouldn't have the scriptures if it were not for the Holy Spirit coming, right? And illumining. So those are important things to look at. So, um, Part two, where it says the, the Holy Spirit is God. So how scripture looks at and defines and presents the Holy Spirit is one of the things we want to look at today. So number one, uh, the Holy Spirit uh, possesses divine attributes. So, so when we consider, when Colton considered um, a couple of weeks ago, the person of Christ, uh, at the time, he helped us look at uh, from scripture that Christ was fully God, yes, truly God, truly man, but he was truly God. And the ways in which that was evidenced and shown to us uh, was the fact of Jesus's divine attributes, how he was presented in the scriptures. And the same thing and in the same way that we see the Holy Spirit is also truly God, fully God in a sense. Um, and from that, we would presume that he would possess these divine attributes that we see. So, some, some ways that, that shows up in Scripture, okay? So, for example, um, we see from Scripture really clearly, and I'm just using some, some excerpts or, or some particular examples. These are obviously not all inclusive. There are much more, many more to these, but just some, just some ones that we picked out. So, for instance, the Holy Spirit's eternal, that he's eternal. It's like, how would we know that? So, the book of Hebrews um, is, is really helpful uh, in this, in a lot of ways. 
uh, in this, essentially the sermon, but um, Hebrews chapter nine, verse 14 says, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscious, our consciences from the acts that lead to death. So in this case, the, the writer of Hebrews tells us that the spirit is eternal and he's working through the ministry of Christ as well. So one of the things we'll look at in a bit and probably even more into next week as well is, is that inner relationship, that inner working uh, between the spirit and the ministry of Christ also. Uh, we also see that the Holy Spirit is uh, omnipresent as well. Um, so this is from Psalm 139, where it says, where can I go from your spirit? And where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens where well, you're there, and if I go down to the to my bed, the grave, the depth, then you're also there. So there's no escaping from the spirit. And then another part too we look at is that the Holy Spirit, how the scriptures uh, present the Holy Spirit is that he's omniscient, that he's all-knowing. And there's a really interesting passage in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses uh, 10 through 11, where, where Paul pulls on this, on this thread and he says that the spirit well, it searches, he searches all things and even the depths, um, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? And in the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So there's this inner, this inner relationship, this inner working between the Godhead. We see that in, in the attribute of omniscience um, with the Holy Spirit as well. Uh, number two is that the Holy Spirit uh, does divine work. And this is why sandwiched in between the, the, um, the doctrine of redemption and the doctrine of Christology, we have this work of this, this pneumatologist work of the Spirit. Because I mentioned earlier, we would not be here this morning, we wouldn't be Christians if it were not for the work of the Holy Spirit. So sandwiched in between those two things is this divine work of the Spirit, which uh, we will get into all that next week for sure, but just kind of a bit of a teaser on that. Um, how that works, how the Holy Spirit works, well, kind of a classic locus of, of text to look at with the fact of how the Spirit does this divine work in our own lives. Um, is seen in this really uh, uh, classic story that you all know really well from John chapter 3 um, of how the Spirit regenerates men. Uh, and this is that story of, um, of Nicodemus, right, of coming to Jesus at night and Jesus pressing him on this, saying that he needs to be born again, and, and Nicodemus asking these questions and in that really uh, seminal and, and always interesting response that Jesus makes, where in the answer to that question, Jesus talks about the wind blowing where it wills. You can't see the wind. You can only see the effects of the wind as well. So this is John chapter 3. If you've never kind of read that from that perspective, I suspect you have. But if you haven't, you might go back and take a look at that. Once again, next week we'll get into much more of the work of the, of the Holy Spirit. Um, number three. Uh, that scripture identifies the Holy Spirit um, as God. That scripture identifies the Holy Spirit as God. So if, if maintaining the, um, the divine attributes of doing divine work does not kind of settle in your mind um, the question of whether the Holy, Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit is God, then scripture actually just tells us outright that, that very fact as well. And it does it in a really interesting story. Once again, there are many places we could look. This is one of those really interesting places to look where scripture indeed identifies um, the Holy Spirit as God. And it's a story about a liar of all things. Um, and it's a story that once again, all of you are very familiar with, I suspect. And this is found in Acts chapter five, verses one through four. And this is that famous story of a husband and wife um, named Ananias and Sapphira. Um, and Luke tells the story in this way. He says, now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, uh, also sold a piece of property with his wife's full knowledge. And he kept back part of the money for himself, 
but uh, brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't it the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? And then Peter adds this last statement to it as well. Have, you've not lied to men. Once again, it's a story about lying, right? You've not lied to men, uh, but you've actually lied to God. So here we see that according to Peter, when Ananias lied, he lied to the Holy Spirit. And he was, in fact, when he was doing that, he was, in fact, lying to God himself. So if lying, so it's kind of the logic here, right? If lying is to the, is to the Holy Spirit is synonymous with lying to God, then the Holy Spirit must be God. So again, there's many examples of this. This is one kind of those dramatic examples that we see in the scripture. Well, okay, so that was number three, that uh, scripture identifies uh, the Holy Spirit as God. Uh, number four, so once again, we're looking at this idea of who, who this Holy Spirit is and how the scriptures has revealed him in this. Number four is that the Holy Spirit is identified as the Yahweh, the Lord. All those all cap spelled out Lord, L-O-R-D, all caps, right? This is the sacred name of God. The Holy Spirit is identified as the Yahweh of the Old Testament, okay? So this is kind of an interesting one because similar to our understanding that Scripture identifies the Spirit uh, as God, we also see references here of words spoken by the Lord in the Old Testament and then later being attributed to being spoken of by the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you ever thought about that before. There are words identified that, that, the, that Yahweh, the Lord, has said in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament we'll see that those words, some of those words, are attributed to be have been spoken of by the Holy Spirit. So, for example, uh, when Isaiah reports that Yahweh, um, that Yahweh said in chapter 6 of the book of Isaiah, Paul asserts the same thing of the Holy Spirit in Acts 28. So, for instance, Isaiah says this. This is Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. The Lord, the Lord said, quote, go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. So this is, Isaiah is speaking as this prophet, speaking um, the words to, of God to his people. This is what the Lord said. Notice what Paul, how Paul handles this in uh, Acts 28. This is verse 25. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your forefathers when he said through Isaiah, link back to the prophet, when he said through Isaiah, the prophet, quote, go to this people and say that you will never be hearing, but, you'll, and you, but never understanding. You will ever be hearing, but never understanding. That you'll be ever seeing, but you'll never be perceiving. So we see this kind of, we see this connection from the Old Testament, the Yahweh speaking in the Old Testament, the Lord speaking, and then how the New Testament writers are going to attribute that to the Holy Spirit as well. We also see that um, in some other places as well, a couple other places that we see where Yahweh, the words of Yahweh are being ascribed to the Holy Spirit. Um, and one of them is in um, uh, Psalm 95, where it says, Yahweh says, the Lord says, Today, if you hear his, this is a verse you know probably quite well. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This is what the Lord says. And yet back to the book of Hebrews once again, this sermon, which is expounding essentially the Old Testament. Chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, the writer of Hebrews says, So as the Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So this is more than just, obviously, this text is more than just a, a proof text as an example, but it's also obviously to be one to apply to our lives as well. Once again, this work of the Spirit, the fact that you have love and affection and desire for Christ, 
um, is not because you and I have broken through our hardened hearts. It's because it's the work of the Spirit on our hardened hearts that has caused this. So we could flip back and forth between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We would find repeated examples of this. I don't know if you ever thought about that idea before or that those examples, but those repeated examples of how of the Old Testament authors ascribing statements to God and then the New Testament writers quoting those statements and ascribing them to the Holy Spirit. And that's important, I think, because in doing so, the New Testament authors affirm, once again, the divinity of of the Holy Spirit, of who he is, and what, how he's kind of working behind the scenes as well. So I want to pause here for a second. I know I'm just kind of going through some lists and some verses, but um, pause here for a second. Any thoughts, questions, quandaries, concerns over just these first part? I've got a couple more examples. I'm purposely pausing here because the last two examples are a bit more lengthy and a, a tad bit more technical and complicated. So I want to pause here for a second. Colton does this much better than I do. So. <laughs> Thoughts or questions over the fact of how the scriptures speak of the Holy Spirit and the fact that he's God. I'll pose a question to you um, as we're sitting here pondering for a second. Do you know the first mention of the Holy Spirit in the scriptures? I think it's in Genesis 1. I think you're right. Can you quote it? I think it says they. I can't quote it. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and I think he uses they or something. And to Yeah, so one of the things we'll get into is this, um, this part about the Trinity itself, and that's one of the texts that sometimes people go to for sure, uh, where we see the Godhead at work. Um, if you keep kind of pressing into that verse two, chapter Genesis chapter one, verse two. So chapter one, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth and the earth was without form. And then we get into this next part of the verse where it says that the spirit was hovering over these waters of the deep, right? So we get the first kind of mention here, the first reference here to the Holy Spirit. In some ways, the scriptures themselves, once again, we have the scriptures because of the Holy Spirit. We search over those bookends from Genesis all the way to Revelation on the Spirit in his movement and his actions and his creation as well. And in a sense, that's what he's doing for you, what he did for you, what he did for me. Um, once again, he's created, um, he's made you into this new creature, right? He's illumined the, the scriptures, he's given us the scriptures, the, all these things as well. Colton says that John Frame makes the point that the scriptures don't lay out a detailed apologetic defense of the Holy Spirit being God because the whole New Testament assumes uh, he is, and Christians in the first century didn't have a problem believing it. Yeah, well, um, Frame would also, I think, apply that, um, not just the, I agree, yeah, the, the, uh, Frame argues that. I, he'd probably go further even than that further even than that to say that the scriptures don't give an apologetic for the Godhead per se, meaning when in the beginning God created. There's not a there's not an apologetic to that. It it it, it assumes that God exists. Um, and he and the writer and Moses moves forward in that. But yeah, thank you, Colton, for saying that. Any other questions in that? Thoughts? Okay, number five. <clears throat> so if you're in the handout, we're looking at that the Holy Spirit is God. Uh, so we're looking this week at, if you've just joined in, that the Holy Spirit is, we're looking at the person of the Holy Spirit. And next week we look at the, um, the work of the Holy Spirit. So number five on the handout, that though distinguish, and there's a really good word that we want to kind of hang on to, the idea of distinction. I want to pause here for a second before I, I work through this little passage. Um, it's really helpful, and when we when we come to look at the Holy Spirit, you have to look at um, the element and to look at the Trinity itself. Um, and to do that is 
is always a, is always intimidating, or at least it is for me, because this is a very hard, difficult concept. Um, one theologian made the point that to attempt to understand the Trinity, you kind of lose your mind, um, and, and if you attempt to deny the Trinity, you end up losing your soul. Um, but when we look at the how the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are represented in the Scriptures, one of the things we want to look at is um, the consider is the word distinction versus the word separation. Distinction and separation. And it may seem like I'm playing around with these words, and I don't mean to do that at all, but I, th I think it's really helpful here to think about that. So, so for example, if I were to separate Colton from Colton's soul from his body, if I were to separate those two things, uh, I will have done Colton great harm because I've killed him. If I've separated Colton from soul from his body, I will have done him immense harm. I've killed him. But I can make a distinction between things. I can make a distinction between Colton's soul and Colton's body, uh, and I've not done him any harm. Okay. I'm not trying to say I'm trying to use I'm not trying to use the analogy of a body here to talk about the Holy Spirit in connection to the uh, to the Trinity. But I am saying we, we want to be careful in making a distinction when we talk about the Holy Spirit in connection to the to the Godhead. So here we go. This is number five. Uh, though distinguished from the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit is represented um, as equal with the Father and the Son in these great Trinitarian passages of the New Testament. As a matter of fact, I put on your handout, so I won't read that, I'll let you do that as well, but one of our statements in our statement of faith is the true God, and I put that at the very top of the handout, um, which reiterates these very points. And it does so perhaps much more succinctly and to the point than, than maybe I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work through this, but I would encourage you to go back and, and look at that statement in our statement of faith um, about the fact that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are co-equal and they're co-eternal in this way. So the term Trinity is not, um, it's not found anywhere in the scriptures, the word itself. And that poses some difficulty for some people. Like, why would we want to look at a word? It's not even found in the scriptures. Um, but it's a helpful word because the very concept of the Trinity is most certainly found in the scriptures. They're found all throughout the scriptures, right? Um, that term Trinity or Trinitas may have been first coined, I think, perhaps by Tertullian um, in that generation after the apostles. Uh, and Trinity is a term that the church developed to sort of summarize the doctrines <clears throat> that's given to us um, sort of in fragments as well. So it's, it's a helpful word, um, and it seeks to combine and convey all that the Scripture teaches regarding the relationship of the Godhead, okay? So you're, you may remember that in one of our earlier classes, um, we looked at, we briefly looked at that doctrine of the Trinity, um, and that doctrine of the Trinity is a summary of sort of all these biblical concepts that the, how the Scriptures speak about who God is and how he's revealed himself. And namely, he's revealed himself this way <clears throat> and how he's revealed himself in the scriptures. That, <clears throat> that there's one God, right? There is but one God. And that God <laughs> is Father and Son and Spirit. And each of them are distinct persons within the Godhead or personae. Um, and that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are all fully God. They are the same being. They are the same essence. Okay. Um, so the historic formula <clears throat> of the Trinity is, <clears throat> and I'll, I'll, we'll get into this just, just briefly, but <clears throat> the historic formula of the Trinity is not to try to explain the Trinity. That would be... a that, that eventually gets you into some, some heretical waters if you keep pushing this further and further. But rather, this, this, um, formula, this historic formulation of the Trinity uh, is to provide for us sort of boundaries and a safeguard 
uh, about this mystery. And in the end, this is a mystery of God. Um, not a contradiction, but a, perhaps a paradox or a mystery of how to understand him. And it confronts us, and it confronts us in a really interesting way because I don't think there's any more difficult thought uh, for the human mind than to consider the Trinity. So I was going to put this up earlier, and I, I forgot to do that. But <clears throat> um, <clears throat> if you want, you can email me, and I'll send, it, I'll send a link to you. But I listened to a, a, a sermon this week by R.C. Sproul uh, entitled The Breath of God, where he gave probably the most comprehensive lecture over the Holy Spirit. I've listened to it about seven times <laughs> and tried to take notes. And I keep coming back to it, trying to understand what he's, the, the concepts that he's using and he's talking about. Um, but I think, if nothing else, just for us this morning, that this historic formula of the Trinity is a good boundary uh, and safeguard for us to consider. So what is this historic formula? I suspect you know this, but we'll, I'll, I'll mention it as well. How we define the Holy Spirit historically has been this, that God is one in essence. And here are these words that we don't use much today, but he's one in essence God's one in essence, but he's also three in person or persons. Okay, he's one in essence and he's three in persons. Now, what, what we mean historically by that is not that there are three gods. Okay, um, that would essentially be tritheism, where there's three dis, dis, um, separate gods. Nor are we saying there are three parts of God. Um, but what, what we're saying or what's being said in the statement that God's one in essence and three in person is that God is one, um, there's one God and he has three, um, three persons or personae. The technical term for this is subsistences. He subsides, right? So when we get to this, this kind of terminology, it's helpful, but it's sometimes a bit confusing as well. So once again, we don't use these words like essence and subsistence or even that word hypostasis. We don't kind of use that sort of language. Um, but if I just camp out on this one word for a second, God's one in essence. Like what in the world do, do, the, um, uh, do the ancient fathers mean, historic church fathers mean by that, the idea of essence? We get that idea of essence comes over in our language is the idea of being or the, the kind of the Greek term for this is usia. So there was a early on in the, in the, in the formulation of the doctrine of Christology, <clears throat> there was this. So Arius is, is most noted for this, this heretic of the early church is that he wanted to make Christ um, like God, but he wasn't truly God. So Arius says that, you know, is, is Jesus homoousios? Is he um, the same substance as God, or is he like God? And, of course, um, Athanasius held firm to this, that obviously that Jesus is God. He's of the same essence of the same being. He's not just like God. He is God. So we get this word essence or usia from this. And then this word uh, person or personae. This comes over from Tertullian's definition of it as well, that there are, there's one God, and I even put a diagram on that handout. Hopefully that would be helpful for you to see. And that one God is not three separate gods, but God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit all subsist in this very notion of God. So there's three personal subsistences who are co-equal and they're co-eternal. Um, and they, they essentially are the centers of God's own self-awareness. <laughs> and I know by even saying that, that gets really philosophical really quick. So um, it's, a, it's a hard concept, and I don't want to pursue it too much further. Otherwise, we'll be chasing this forever. And like I said, I'll probably get us into a heresy, and I do not want to do that. Uh, but I do think it's helpful uh, for, for a couple of reasons, this, as we get work this back into the Holy Spirit. One of is this. Oftentimes you'll hear um, Muslims accuse of Christianity of being polytheistic, right? So this is an answer back to, uh, back to Muslims, right? So 
the answer to Muslims and other monotheistic religions that Christianity clearly and absolutely affirms that there is only one God. But this one God exists or subsists into three persons. And some people say, well, is that reasonable? Is that contradictory? Well, it is reasonable. Uh, and it, it's reasonable in the sense that there's nothing in the, sort of this, this Trinitarian doctrine that's unreasonable or irrational. So there's nothing inherently contradictory about the position, despite it being mysterious, yes, but not contradictory. So if you recall what a contradiction is, something can't be A and non-A at the same time in the same relationship. So we're not saying that God's one in person and he's three in person. We're not holding to that. But we're saying that God's one in essence and being, and he has three subsistences to that being as well. Uh, and then there's another part of this too, that, um, that um, there are no analogies to this. And I, I'm sure that you've heard all the analogies. I've heard a lot of them as well. You've got the egg analogy. You've got the water analogy. You've heard the water one, right? There's three parts, three states, the water. Um, and none of them work well because if you start pressing these analogies too much, you end up into one of these heresies. You end up in tritheism or one of the ones I didn't mention, you perhaps could end up in what's called modalism. And modalism is the denial that there are three distinct persons in the Godhead, rather that God shows up in one mode or another. So in the Old Testament, he's in the mode of the Father. And then he shows up in the mode of Jesus. And then when Jesus leaves, he shows up in the mode or the, the person of the Holy Spirit. So there's no distinction within that. And we would obviously not want to, the scriptures don't affirm that in the least as well. So these analogies don't, <laughs> don't work so well uh, in this. Um, one of the things to look at, we don't have time to do that this morning, but I would direct you to do that, is to look at a, Augustine, maybe the most helpful in this that I've ever read. Um, so if you've ever read um, his work on the Trinity, or particularly if you've read his, um, his confessions, he, he'll even talk about this as well where Augustine will, will move away from physical objects to describe, to try to give some sort of analogy to the, to the Trinity. And he'll, he'll give examples like this. Augustine will say that there's a correlation between the lover, the object that's being loved, and then the love that's shared between them as well. So he says there's, a good, there's this correlation. Or he'll say something like this, that there's the being of God, there's the knowing of God, and then there's the willing of God. There's the being of God, which is the essence. Then there's the knowing of God, what he knows about himself, and he knows himself perfectly. He has a perfect idea of himself. Remember, God's not a person in the sense he has a body. He's pure spirit. And so this mind of God knows himself perfectly. You and I are aware of ourselves but we can, we can um, deceive ourselves about ourselves. God knows himself perfectly. As a matter of fact, we see this further in this, this idea that his thoughts about himself become this perfect idea of himself. So what is the difference between God himself and God's perfect idea of himself? And we see that most clearly represented in the incarnation of Christ, right? That Jesus is this perfect um, idea of knowing uh, of, of God's mind that reflects God's thoughts. He's the perfect image of God in that way. And this love that's shared between the Father and the Son, this is the Holy Spirit. This is the willing part. So this is how Augustine gets to this as well, which is pretty interesting, right? So even though there's sort of nothing in the natural world that we have that would um, help us to sort of fully understand this. That does not mean that there's any, there's no proof text, there's no examples in the scriptures, and that's really what we want to look at. This, how does the scriptures actually look to these things, uh, define these things? In, in the new? So we'll look at a couple of passages in the New Testament, two passages that you're really familiar with. So one is uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. And it says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, so all of you know this passage really well, right? We see the full working of the Godhead here. As soon as Jesus was baptized, 
he went up out of the water. And at the, at the moment, heaven was open and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven that said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. So once again, we see the full kind of panoramic picture here of the, of the Godhead in this passage. By the way, a little side note here that the Holy Spirit is, is this lifelong companion, supporter, encourager, counselor, director in Jesus' life. We see that all throughout, um, um, all throughout the Gospels. If you go back and reread, reread the life of Jesus through the Gospels, you'll see the working of the Spirit in all parts and pieces of his life and ministry as well. Um, which is pretty fascinating. Um, the three persons of the Godhead is also clearly shown in this passage. They're functioning, once again, as these distinct roles. Not separate, but distinct roles. So God the Father is speaking from heaven. God the Son is being baptized to fulfill the Father's will. And God the Spirit is descending uh, from heaven upon the Son, empowering his ministry. So we see this that uh, we see that whenever the Father does in dealing with man, he generally does this through the through the Son, and he does this by the Spirit. Great place to look at the work of the Godhead. Um, I think this is kind of the great place that that Paul hones in on this is is to read Ephesians chapter one and chapter two, particularly Ephesians Ephesians two nineteen. Just a great place to look at that how the Father is working through the Son, and how the Son is working through the Spirit as well. Another really great place to consider, I don't know if you've thought about this before, but Matthew 28, 19, which is a passage you know very, very well, right? Matthew 28, 19, where Jesus says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, and then this classic right, statement of baptism, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, it's easy to zip through that passage, that verse that we've all read about a thousand times in our lives, perhaps. But notice that Jesus does not, what, the, what Jesus does not instruct his disciples to do, right? Um, he, doesn't, he does not say to baptize them, new believers, in the names, plural. Uh, rather, he says that to baptize them in the name, singular, right? Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Um, so in this statement, this statement asserts the unity of these three persons of the Trinity, um, and it combines them, once again, within sort of these bounds of the singular name of who God is, right? It's a good, good passage to think on, to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Number six, that the Holy Spirit comes from the Father and is sent by the Father and the Son. So why is that important? That the Holy Spirit comes from the Father and he's sent by the Father uh, and the Son. So as you can see, there, there are a lot of scriptural evidence conveying that the Spirit is fully God. Um, but how does that Spirit relate to the other members of the Godhead? and with creation uh, as well. And, and perhaps while we're asking these questions, why is the Holy Spirit spoken of as the third person of the Trinity and not the first person or the second person? I don't know if you've ever thought of that. Like these two really good questions. Why is the Holy Spirit oftentimes referred to as the third person of the Trinity? And another one we'll touch briefly on is why is he called holy? I mean, if he's God, obviously he's holy. God the Father is holy. We don't, so, and this is like, why make that distinction? Those are two really good questions to look at, right? Um, so this, this good question of, to consider, why, why is he called the third person of the, of the Trinity? <clears throat> Does this mean that the Spirit, God the Spirit, is less than God the Father and the Son? So obviously the answer is no to that, right? So in relation to the Father and the Son, the Spirit is same in substance. He's the same in substance. He's equal in power and glory. So once again, a really good place to look is back to that statement of faith that we have, the one true God that I put the top of that handout. Right? That there, there is a unity in their being. The big fancy word here is 
their ontology, their being. They, there's unity, there's co, they're co-equal in, um, in their being. There's unity in that, in their essence. This was what makes them the Godhead, right? But someone could ask, and perhaps you've been asked this question as well, so why do Christians refer to God the Father as the first person and the Son the second person? and the Spirit is the third person, if it's not to show some sort of superiority between them, right? So even in the names, wouldn't the Father have preeminence over the Son? And that's a really good question. I noticed that I found my early part of my life, I was kind of struggling with that question too. Um, however, the answer is not found in a difference of supremacy between the members of the Godhead as though there's one greater essence, there's one more God than the other. That's not what's being said by this. Uh, priority order does not necessarily mean superiority. Instead, the answer, I think, is better found in the different functions of the person, uh, of the persons within the, within the Trinity. So, for instance, the, the Son and the Spirit are equal to the Father in deity and being. Right, they're this. They're co-equal, co-eternal, uh, but they are subordinate in their roles to one another. So only the distinctions between the members of the Trinity are in the ways they can relate to each other, um, and and to creation. So a couple of passages uh, to look at. Right. So through Scripture, we see these these kind of distinctions in the roles of the, these uh, in the activities of the members of the Godhead. Right. So for, for instance, John 14, Jesus says this, I will ask the Father, he will give to you another counselor. By the way, emphasis here on the word another, another counselor, or where we get the word paraclete from, or the word comforter, depending on your translation of that. Um, so Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give to you another counselor to be with you, the spirit of truth. The counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, well, he will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I've said to you. Okay. By the way, go back if you have time this week, read John chapter 12 all the way through 15. Good, good section of, of the New Testament to ponder on and consider this week when it comes to the role of the Holy Spirit. Um, Jesus also says in John 15 that when the counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit, once again, there's that reference of the Spirit of truth, goes out from the Father, from the Father, that he will testify about me. So once again, the Holy Spirit comes from the Father, and he's sent by the Father and the Son, right? So the New Testament clearly teaches this, teaches that the Father and the Son send the Spirit, send the Holy Spirit. And that the Son breathed, he poured out the Holy Spirit on a particular day in, in history, which is the day of Pentecost. Right? The Spirit freely and willingly agreed to be sent by the Father and the Son. And so the Holy Spirit, Spirit proceeds from that. This is why in the confession of the early church is that we talk about the idea that the Son is eternally generated and that the Spirit is sent, right? And by, by the idea of generation, we do not mean that, notice that the church fathers didn't say that Jesus is eternally created, but the fact that he's eternally generated, and that the Spirit is the one that's being sent here, okay? So one really, I think, important application of this is how this reality shapes our relationships just between other people, between other humans, right? So if you think about it this way, the Bible teaches that when it comes to the relationship between, for example, husband and wife, they're equal in value and dignity, but they obviously have different roles, right? So that word, that distinction, once again, is important. That distinction in human relationship um, is reflected in the Godhead. So for instance, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, Paul says this. He says, but I want you to understand the head of every man is Christ and that the head of a wife is your husband and the head of Christ is God. So the head of Christ is God the Father. The Father and the Son send the Spirit. The Father and the and Son and the Spirit are equally God. 
equal in dignity, value, but nonetheless God, uh, and each have different roles in that. So think about that and apply that to your own life in, in, in God's plan of redemption. If you're a Christian, right, that the Father initiates, that the Son's work, and that the Spirit applies. Once again, those are not three separate roles. Those are three roles that all of them are carrying out, that are carrying through all parts of the Godhead to the fact that <clears throat> you are a Christian, you love Christ, that you follow him. This is the role of this Trinitarian work of redemption in our lives, which is a beautiful thing, right? And we see a bit of a picture of that, once again, in our relationships uh, between other people, particularly in, the, in this role between husband and wife as well. So again, equal value and dignity, but different roles in that way, right? So the Holy Spirit is consistently represented in Scripture as being fully divine. Um, and perhaps the more pertinent issue in, in relation to the Holy Spirit, though, is this doctrine of the Trinity, and, and it's whether the Bible presents the Holy Spirit not only as being personal, but also a person. So there's this distinct from persons and the Father and the Son, right? But we always want to make these distinctions, and yet they're working together in this way. So really quick as we finish this part up, uh, to look at the fact of how the Holy Spirit actually is a personality, how he's once again represented in the scriptures. I think it's pretty important as we, as we wrap this up. So pause here for a second. I've pitched a lot at you, I know, especially with the Trinity. I was dreading and fretting over this part because the more you talk about the Trinity, <laughs> the more you can get into areas you don't want to get into. But I'll pause here for a second. I'll take a drink and then I have a question that I can hopefully somewhat coherently address. So Jared says, is there, is there a chain of command like relationship um, between and with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Son and Holy Spirit submitting to the Father. Um, yeah. Yeah, once again, we go back to this, this, this inner relationship between the Godhead. By the way, the, one of the, um, even for the pagan Greeks um, who were trying to get, one of the things that the, the pagan philosophers and Greek Greek philosophy wanted to try to get at is how can you have unity with so much diversity? Like what is, what's the connecting force of all things? What's, what is the unifying thing in all things? And that was a, that was a head scratcher for them, right? So they tried to find all different things to do that. It was water for some of it was fire. Um, and it's funny, if you go back to Acts chapter 17, Paul uh, at, at the Areopagus, you know, he's in Athens, and all these Athenians and all these Greek, Greek philosophers, right? And he quotes back to them this, this fantastic passage. But he says, in God, we live, move, and have our being. And Paul's connecting here. Eventually, he'll, he'll connect us up to the resurrection of Christ himself. But Paul's getting at that very point, right, that we find ultimate unity um, in God himself. We get our very being from God. But if you stretch that even further, even the Trinity itself, we see the ultimate sense of unity and diversity in that, which is pretty cool. Um, so Stacey and Ryan asked, why do you think we, especially Christians in the West, tend to undervalue the person of the Holy Spirit and the Trinity? I think it's a great question. And it's probably a lot of different reasons. Um, one is, I think, is that perhaps we become a little bit leery because there's so much misteaching and misunderstanding about the Holy Spirit, especially with the early charismatic movement at the turn of the century. So I'm thinking of sort of uh, Pentecostalism, and now we see Neo-Pentecostalism. So we, we kind of tend to want to push away from that. So the pendulum swings all the way to the other side. Maybe that's one reason. Um, Maybe another reason, too, is that we just haven't given considerable effort, and, and I'm guilty of this, and maybe a lot of people are, that perhaps the, um, the, as teachers within the church, we haven't given priority to the Holy Spirit either. And so, so as the teaching goes within the church, so too the church goes. And so when we don't give priority to something, 
uh, or in this case, the sum one, um, we that tends to be reflective in the in in our lives as well. And then maybe the third thing is the role of the Holy Spirit is in in a lot of ways working in the background, right? So we know the Holy we know the Father. We see that we see the Son. Um, and that the role of the Holy Spirit always seems to be as sort of a role and a, a, a supreme important role in the background that he's working. And, I, and that may be a, a few reasons. There's probably a lot of reasons why. So Jared asks, is it okay to address our prayers to the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit's God. So, yeah. <laughs> yes, that's a right and good thing to do to, to thank him. I, I was a, a member of a church several years ago. There was an older saint, a gentleman there, and I distinctly remember he, he would pray just the way he would say Holy Spirit, which has always kind of caught my attention. But he would. He would, he would thank the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, Holy Spirit. So, yeah, I think that's definitely appropriate. Yeah. Um, if you want to really dig into it, um, Terry says, the um, Cappadocian Fathers are also really helpful, yes they are, to read when it comes to the person and nature distinction of the Trinity. Yeah. Um, yes, I very much agree. Thank you, Terry. That's, that's, a, that's a good suggestion. All right, friends, we're almost out of time. One last thing to look at is sort of the person or the personality of the Holy Spirit and how the scriptures speak. So this, once again, we're not, we would never want to say that the spirit is a force or the spirit is an it. The spirit is a he, right? He's a person. Um, and we know that, not just the fact because of the forefathers of the church tell us that. We know that and, and rest in that because the scriptures tell us that. And that, there's our, where our authority lies in the scriptures themselves. So, for example, the person of the Holy Spirit, this is part three of your handout. Well, he's referred to in personal pronouns, right? So the first reason to consider that is, is how the, these pronouns are used, right? So, for example, in Acts chapter 10, uh, well, it says, while Peter was still thinking about the vision, so where the vision comes to Peter, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I, I have sent them. So a little while later, Acts 13, at the church in Antioch, we have this episode as well. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me, personal, me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Right? So when Jesus and the apostles speak of the Holy Spirit, they always use personal pronouns. Right? He, him, himself. And I think this is clearly testifies to the personhood uh, of the Holy Spirit, right? Once again, he's a he, a who, not an it or a force um, that's just floating around somewhere in space, right? Uh, number two, uh, that the scriptures present the Holy Spirit with personal properties as well. So another reason to consider the Spirit as a person is from how he is described and what is ascribed to him, right? Um, such as he has wisdom, he has will, he has power. So, for example, the operation, the working of his will, for example, is seen in 1 Corinthians 12, 11, where it says, all, Paul says, all things are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he gives them to each one just as he just as he determines. So Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the comforter, not merely comfort, but the comforter, right? By the way, that's a really interesting word. It comes from the old English words of comforte, right? With, and the word forte, so if you have, if you have a background in music, <clears throat> you'll know that word forte, right? Forte is with strength, right? You play with strength. And what's super interesting here, that word that, that this comforter is that the Holy Spirit comes with strength and he comes not to strengthen believers, not to comfort you and I after, or maybe even during something, but he will give you strength prior to, during and after as well, that he will be your comforter, not just to pat you on the back and hopefully you feel good about things. Um, but that he will be the comfort for you during this time. Right. 
that that term comforter or paraclete, which is sort of this, from what I gathered, sort of the Greek idea of a counselor or an attorney, but someone who will speak truth about you, who is on your side, right? So this is the work which we'll get much more into next week uh, of that. But nonetheless, the Holy Spirit has these characteristics, uh, personal characteristics as well. And then number three, really quick, that the Holy Spirit has per, does personal activities as well. So the, um, the Holy Spirit is a person. He's personal. He has activities that are ascribed to him. So scripture speaks of it this way. So I mentioned uh, Genesis 1, 1, 2, to go all the way to the end, Revelation, where in Revelation 2, 7, John writes, to him who has an ear, let him hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the Holy Spirit reveals. Right? He guides people, Jesus says, to all truth. The Holy Spirit teaches. Um, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will teach you all these things. This is John 14. The Holy Spirit comforts. He counsels. He helps. He loves the believer. Paul says in Romans 15, I urge you, brothers, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit encourages. He warns. He appoints to office. He can be grieved. He can be lied to. We saw that with Ananias and Sapphira. He can be resisted. He can be blasphemed. And that's one of the things we want to look at next week is this whole deal of the blaspheming, perhaps, of the Holy Spirit as well. So all these things, we see this clear personality and the distinct identity of this third person of the Godhead, of the Trinity. And we do that because, and how we see that, once again, is from the scriptures, um, from the scriptures itself. One last thing before we go and take any other questions. Um, why is the Holy Spirit called the Holy Spirit? Like, he's God, so is the Father, so is the Son. Why do we put that adjectival, that modifier, onto the Spirit? Why do we call him the Holy Spirit? And I think, that's a, I think that's a good thing to kind of ponder, and there's probably a lot of ways that we could answer that and look at that. Um, but I think if you consider, once again, what perhaps one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is, uh, not all of it, but one of the roles is that his role is to serve as a sanctifier in our lives. Not just the fact to bring us to faith, but to carry that, to, to keep sanctifying us, to, to conform us to the image of Christ. In other words, he's called the Holy Spirit because his role, part of his role, is to make you and I holy. He's a sanctifier. Um, and therefore, because of that, not just that one thing, but a lot of things, that when Jesus said that little statement I gave to you from Sinclair Ferguson, that sort of thought experiment, that in all ways, and particularly just kind of this one way, that it is better that the Holy Spirit will come, that he's making us, he's conforming us into the likeness of Christ himself. Um, and I think that may be one part of a larger part of why he's called the Holy Spirit, of what he does and what he's doing uh, in our lives. So that's one of the things we want to look at next week is, is the work of the Spirit as well. Okay. Um, yeah, so Colson's got a couple couple responses up there you can take a look at. So hopefully that made some sense. Friends, it's very strange teaching to a, talking to a camera <laughs> and hearing myself, but um, hopefully that, that'll give you some, some good things to think about this week. Once again, I encourage you to go back um, this week and just read through John chapters 12 through 15. That would be a good place to, to kind of hang out. Um, and next week, we'll come back and look at sort of the work of the Spirit as well. So we'll take a look at what do we mean when we say the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's gotten all kinds of perhaps misuses as well. Um, being filled with the Spirit. What's the Spirit doing? What's the Spirit responsible for? We'll kind of fill in some, hopefully some of those gaps as well. Okay. Anything else? Any other questions? I'll pause. I'm probably going to come back to you next week on that praying to the Holy Spirit thing. Uh, okay. 
unless now's a good time. Um, I'll tell you what, why don't you, um, I put my email address on that handout. If you see it, you can shoot me if you want to think through that question and I can try to address that. Okay. All right. Yeah. yeah. Next week too, for sure. That way I'll have some time to think about that too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, next week we'll look at what um, theologians sometimes refer to as the economic, the outward working of the Trinity. So we've talked a little bit about the Trinity itself, how the interrelationship works between Father, Son, and Spirit. But how does that work uh, in the world, right? What is the outward working of that? Um, and that's, that I think is pretty fascinating. So we'll look at, obviously, one of the most important events uh, in church history, and that's the day of Pentecost, right? Um, and I, I think that's a good thing to kind of think through because what we see is a fulfillment at Pentecost of Moses's prayer in the book of Numbers. And Joel picks that up and, and prophesies that same prayer um, about the Spirit being poured out on all of God's people. And then we see the fruition of that uh, in Pentecost as well. Even how Luke structures the book of Acts which could be kind of retitled re the acts of the Holy Spirit, right? How he's, how he's working through that. So that would be pretty helpful as well. <laughs> All right, Colton's having a good time. All right, uh, I'm going to pray for us and hopefully um, give you something to think about this week and uh, pray for Brad as he preaches this morning. Lord, thank you so much uh, for the day. Thank you for uh, your goodness. Thank you for your word. Lord, I do thank you for each of the people who've I've, uh, Join us this morning. God, I pray that I'd be faithful to your word, um, that I'd be careful what I say and not speak beyond things that I don't know of. Lord, I pray that um, your spirit or that your Holy Spirit would be making us holy, would be working as a sanctifying force um, or a sanctifier in our life. Um, Lord, I pray for each person that's here this morning in this um, this meeting, that you would show yourself through your word, that you're, the Holy Spirit would reveal himself through your word, that uh, we would be made in the image, more and more so in the image and the conformity of Christ. And so, Father, I pray this morning as uh, Brad teaches that you would, this Holy Spirit would illumine our thoughts, would inflame our um, will and desire for Christ, and that it would fuel our worship um, and our desire to know you more through your word. And uh, Lord, we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.